0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: This episode
2: is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing, whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
0: For the first time since cities were built and founded, the great agricultural tracts produce no grain. The inundated tracts produce no fish. The irrigated orchards produce neither syrup nor wine. The gathered clouds did not rain. The mazgurum did not grow. At that time, one shekel's worth of oil was only one half quart. One shekel's worth of grain was only one half quart. These sold at such prices in the market of all the cities. He who slept on the roof died on the roof. He who slept in the house had no burial. People were flailing at themselves from hunger. A cad. Instead of its sweet flowing water, there flowed bitter water. Whoever said, I will dwell in that, found not a good dwelling place. Whoever said, I will lie down in a cad, I am not a good sleeping place. That was terrifying, Dominic. That's a chilling reading. It's, it's yeah. there's a chilling words, chillingly delivered. I think it's fair to say, very, very chillingly delivered. And and I know that uh, you think about the Curse of a Cad most days, don't you? It's something I do. that really plays on your mind. I do. So, would you like to
2: share your nightmare with the listeners? So, the Curse of a Cad is um, uh, composed around two thousand two hundred fifty BC, um, and It has been adduced as an example of the theme of today's episode, which, Dominic, is climate apocalypse. Cheery. Cheery for... uh, yeah. Well, because I I wanted to call it climate change, and you insisted on calling it climate apocalypse. Yeah. So that's what we're going to do. I have the instinct, Tom, (laughs) of a top newspaper editor, I think it's fair to say. I know you do. So the question is, though, is is that what you so terrifyingly and sonorously read out? (laughs) Is it a record of climate change, of climate apocalypse, or is it something more ambivalent, more complicated? And as it happens, we have the absolute perfect person on hand to answer that question for us, and that is none other than Peter Frankopan, who is Professor of Global History at Oxford University, international man of mystery a man who never knowingly wears a shirt without unbuttoning it to his navel. Um, and he is the author of a new book that's just come out, The Earth Transformed, which, Peter, um, you're naturally a very modest man, I know. You must feel very embarrassed by how well it's been reviewed, the kind of the splash it's made.
1: I'm still in shock listening to Dominic's uh, fine performance in <laughs> treading the boards. I mean, I, I, was, I was going to say how great it is to come onto your history podcast, but I think you're, you're in the wrong career, Dominic, That's Royal yeah. Shakespeare Company calls. You're not the first to say that, Peter, and you won't be the last, let's be frank. Uh, A lot of (laughs) listeners
0: will know that I was cruelly denied. You probably don't know this, Peter, unless you followed my career as closely as you should have done. But I was cruelly denied the role of Paddington, uh, which was given to Ben Whishaw instead, because I'd worked with the director.
1: The station or the... Not the station.
0: I could play the station if there was an anthropomorphic (laughs) railway station. But we're going off-piste already, Tom. You warned this would happen.
1: Yes, yes.
2: Um, So, Peter... Your book, The Earth Transformed, is basically a history about how climate has influenced the history of humanity right the way up to the present. And because Dominic has insisted on calling this climate apocalypse, we thought we would begin with, with that, which is a very early example from the kind of beginnings of urban civilization. ACAD is often adduced as the first example of an empire. So what are the complexities in deciding whether that is a record of climate change?
1: Well, never trust a historian. That's the first problem. Uh, when people write things down about dying on roofs and and starve, starvation and hunger, um, you know the tabloid editors of the past were equally as ferocious and uh, committed as they are today. So I think uh, never never let the facts get in the way of a good story. So I think quite often with history, and you hear about devastation, collapse, famines, droughts, um, you have to be extremely cautious about taking what you're reading with a pinch of salt. And um, in fact, in this particular case. Uh, what makes it so helpful to us is that we don't have to rely on historians to check what's going on because we can look at a whole bunch of new types of sciences to be able to measure everything ranging from um, uh, levels in ice cores to be able to tell what's happening to carbon dioxide levels through to fossilised pollen in the, case of, in the case of the curse of ACAD or around about 2,250 Uh, BC, so four and a half thousand years ago, you can see changes to the records in Oman, uh, in southwestern Iran, you can see there's a dramatic series of changes that have happened to the natural environment. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that human beings start to collapse, but it means that the conditions around us change. And, you know, my book is not just about climate, it's it's about uh, the natural world as a whole. And I think all of us realise that the natural world is always changing, not just because the sun shines brighter or the rains don't come, but also because of the ways in which uh, those landscapes are transformed. I mean, obviously, most obviously by human beings. But, you know, we're not the only species on this earth that change the way in which land gets used. You know, other big mammals in particular uh, are huge disturbers of vegetation and all sorts of different animals, including very, very small ones that we don't pay any attention to and get very badly treated by people who complain about um, the natural world and are worried about climate change. We tend to over prioritize big animals and the little ones like uh, termites and mosquitoes, moths, things like that, uh, are hugely important in our ecosystems too. So in, in this particular case, we can see that there is a moment of stress, uh, what, uh, climatic stress. Most times when that happens, most times when you have hot summers, uh, problems don't come. And in the case of Naram Sin, the son of the or the grandson of the great Sargon of Akkad, who is the kind of great Donald Trump of the Mesopotamian world, uh, although there is clearly a series of shocks that go through the system. In fact, what happens is that Naram Sin uses that as an opportunity to consolidate and centralise power, which is what good rulers do. And as you've covered so well in many of your other episodes, never never let a good crisis go to waste. So a, a lot depends on what it is you is you're, you're looking for. And there's the historian, the lightness of touch of using these new data materials that we have. As a way of adding texture, rather than trying to sort of uh, upend the apple cart, and the volume and the range and accuracy of these materials is 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 incredibly profound and also uh, enormously exciting. And so, these are new developments. Uh, yeah, I mean, they've they've been two or three decades in the coming, but I mean now now the thing that's moving by far the fastest in my world as a historian, our worlds as historians, uh, you know, every now and again somebody finds a text. That they haven't seen before. Every now and again, you you know you get an Indiana Jones type discovery. There's this amazing CIA declassification of, of satellite photos over um, Afghanistan and the former Soviet Union that allow us, particularly when it has been dry these last couple of summers or extra dry, to spot things from the air that we didn't know were there: caravanserai's and and structures, canals, and things like that. But in the world of historical discoveries, uh, works on genomics works on to help us with migrations. Uh, works on uh, you know ice cores, tree rings, fossilized pollens, all the kind of biological sciences.
2: But specifically on ACAD, on this question yeah. about ACAD, you know, is this so it's kind of very daily mail, property prices falling, all that kind of stuff. Dominic pulls the face. <laughs> you know, there's obviously th- th- there is um, there's drama inherent in making things sound as, as bad as possible. It sells the equivalent of newspapers, whatever they had in ACAD. Tablets. <laughs> a tablet, yes. But to what extent does the description of it, can we test from new scientific developments how accurate those descriptions are?
1: Yeah, in this particular case, four and a half thousand years ago, we would ideally have a greater set of written records to be able to explain what exactly is going on. I mean, there are a set of obvious things that one would look for when you have um, climate stress or food shortages, whether it's climate or otherwise. You know, and that would be, normally be, as we all know today, inflation. Cosy lives, cost of living crises. This
2: happened, you know, millennia ago. Can we read it in the scientific record? Is there other ways of kind of stress testing how accurate these descriptions are? Is this what's happened over the past three
1: decades? Yes. I mean, in the case of Sargon of Akkad, going back four and a half thousand years, quite close to the beginning of when writing systems have come into into play, it's a kind of totemic boundary point, 2200, because in fact, there are lots of things that are happening in other parts of the world at about the same time. So as a kind of curse of Akkad, because we've got this text that Dominic read out so poetically, um, that is a kind of lightning rod to to draw attention to the Sargon of Akkad. But I mean, I think what, what historians tend to do when they run with these ideas about collapses. They they tend to focus on people at the top. So if you have uh, civilizational collapse, uh, or um, societal problems, that's bad if you're an elite member of the elite, but it's maybe not so bad if you're not one of the priests, one of the rulers. So in, in the case of, of the Curse of Acha, there's a whole system of global changes that's now named by scientists the Megalayan period or the breakpoint, because the, le- the, the sheer volume of climate climatic data from that period um, is so voluminous. In terms of pinpointing individual cases like Sargon of Akkad, we want to have more written materials. And, you know, we shouldn't forget that a thousand years before Sargon, we've got almost nothing to go with at all. Right. But that record starts to warm up and get much more plentiful as we reach other periods. So we have to do a bit of, I wouldn't say creative thinking, but a bit of plotting. What does this look like compared to other similar kinds of cases? And, and like I already said, Naram-Sin, uh, who is the subject of these terrible uh, What's well, not a curse, but of the crises, is able to consolidate his position and build an empire afterwards. So, whatever the, the challenge that he goes through, it's obviously not totally cataclysmic because he's able to reboot. But that's good for him. It's maybe not so good if you're coerced labor. It's not so good if you're a slave. Not so good if you are um, someone who hasn't made it through your rooftop seance where you starve to death. But you know, life does go on in history.
0: Just on the using this as a sort of metaphor for the bigger story would it be fair to say that people have always been haunted by this idea of climate apocalypse or are we back projecting um, and, and that uh, these are just sort of ordinary mundane anxieties about the harvest or about, you know, invasion or fire and flood or whatever, or do you think there is something deeper that's always lurked in the background?
1: There's definitely something deeper. Go to the story of the creation. I mean, that is a uh, book of Genesis chapter one, book one. It's all about how the ideal scenario has been created on earth in the case of the Judaic, Christian, and Islamic faiths, uh, for the benefit of humans, and if you transgress and you anger God, uh, you're punished ecologically and environmentally. I mean, if you're booted out of the Garden of Eden for not obeying orders, um, you you are forced to grow crops in dusty conditions and to face hardship. So, I think in the the Western Abrahamic traditions, or the Abrahamic traditions, um, I think that idea about anxiety is extremely close. And of course, Noah. And the floods, uh, which we see in the Sumerian flood story, we see in the in the Atrahasis, in other yeah. Mesopotamian texts, obviously leaves a huge imprint on the anxieties of people around what happens if uh, climate conditions shift or deliver unexpected shocks. And the reason those are written down is to communicate the anxieties to future generations. I mean, that's what historians do. Otherwise, otherwise you just chat about it. You don't bother committing it to uh, to cuneiform tablets, pens, and paper. In other types of traditions in the Indic world, into the Sanskrit texts too, the ideas that the the, the gods, a bit like in ancient Greece, are busy having rivalries with with each other and choosing which humans to be benign to, uh, again dating back 4,000 years or so, does speak to the idea that that the heavens are seen as a gateway towards punishment and reward for good behaviour. And the, the, the worry that if you exceed your ecological footprints, you're going to face cataclysms. So I think that the idea of apocalypse closely linked towards exhaustion of resources, uh, climatic stress through floods and through drought, are, are extremely, run extremely deep into our sort of psyches and our historical records. Yeah.
2: And Peter, just, just to follow up on this question of your book is subtitled An Untold History. Just how new these perspectives are. The reason that it's untold is because the scientific evidence wasn't available now. Just looking at a couple of very famous examples of how historians have interpreted the interaction of climate with history. So the 6th century AD, which is a period that you are particularly familiar with.
1: Love the 6th century.
2: It's often said that you know this is a period where there's massive cooling, has massive knock-on effects on on the Persian Empire, on the Byzantine Empire, and the emergence of Islam. All kinds of things like that. And then the other one is the um, what's called the Little Ice Age, and particularly focused on the seventeenth century. The idea that there is actually a global ice age, a global cooling. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot in this podcast. Tom. Yeah, the sort of Thirty Years War, the English Civil Wars, all that stuff. But also in China, the the, the collapse of the imperial structures in China, and and in America, and in Africa those two examples are we able now as historians as scientists to stress test just what the nature of the interaction of climate is with empires with frameworks of authority better than we were say 10 years ago 20 years ago
1: okay so the 6th century uh the thing that is most important is not to get hung up on climate on its own right so climate is an important factor and it's interesting because of the temperature drops by far the more important thing is what what um that, that climate shifts triggered by a series of volcanic eruptions in the 530s and early 540s. Because
2: you love a volcanic eruption, don't you? You love a volcanic eruption. They're, a, well, I'm, I'm, they're going I'm off all
1: throughout your book. <laughs> they, <laughs> they do go off. They do go off. Well, we, you know, <laughs> kind of every other page, a volcano is. <laughs> 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 I will come back, we'll come back to volcanoes. The, those volcanic eruptions in the 6th century, by far the most dramatic thing they do is not just um, impacting. Uh, atmospheric conditions and reduce uh, cro- crop grain periods which they clearly do and impact belief systems because um, lots of people can are concerned about punishment from the divine etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, the thing that's by far the most important is they change pathogen behavior and the pathogen behavior in this particular case is uh, is uh, making plague more virulent and allows uh, the Justinianic plague to take hold and to decimate I mean it's part of a very frosty conversation between different groups of historians, but clearly it's a massive population loss in Europe. And in that sense, what volcanoes often do is not just that they inject masses of dust into the atmosphere and make it slightly harder to grow things, it's quite often they trigger uh, medical and disease environments to change. And and two good examples that parallel what happens in the 6th century is the eruption of Santorini around 1600 BC, where apart from the tsunami it generates that knocks over Crete, the fact that it's a huge detonation, uh, it triggers again in this particular case uh, the virulence of the variola virus, which your listeners will know is what lies behind smallpox. And smallpox in the last couple of hundred years before its eradication probably killed about 300 million people just in the 19th and most of the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries alone. So those kinds of things are much more important than a growing season. Uh, Likewise, Mount Tambora that... You know, again, that generated the year without the summer and uh, obviously is linked through to... So that's 1816. 1815, the trigger, but the, the summer of 1816, which you know you can fold into the Peterloo mass- Massacre, you can f- link through to... Frankenstein. Oh, Frankenstein. It's a whole palette you can open up. Yeah. But one of the things that it does that has more, impli- more, well, it doesn't have to be either or, but creates a general impact is it changes the marine biology of the Bay of Bengal that unlocks and makes cholera take over. And the cholera that then devastates Bengal spreads and you can trace it through the Middle East, through into Russia, into Europe. And so these kinds of things are just all about the natural environment and about how they shift us around rather than just around uh, climatic conditions. But I think, I think we we don't necessarily always overlook those, but quite often historians, as you know, as you know from your podcast and from your own wonderful work, we tend to specialise in single periods or single regions. And it's, it's the tying together bigger canvases in detail, um, that I think is the, the, the bit that's untold, that's plotting it all out onto a kind of big big canvas to take a look at. But so in both these cases, the Delice Age and with um, the Justinianic plagues of the 6th century, I think a lot requires the deafness of the nuance of being able to layer in this new evidence that we have, but to do it in a way that is asking questions. So in the case of the Justinianic plague, for example, because we have these new technologies available, there's a group that's worked on a site called Edicts Hill in Cambridgeshire, that you'll know, Tom, from your, from your books uh, very well, that the Black Death or the Justinianic Plague arrives in Pelusium at the, at the mouth of the Red Sea or the gateway to, to Egypt and then is supposed to spread across the Mediterranean that way. That's how the historians write about it at the time and you can start to see the deaths being written about in a kind of sequence. Uh, the Edicts Hill data shows that there's evidence of plague um, about four or five years before that episode in North Egypt. So plague is endemic or is existing in, not just in England, but in rural England. right. And so that, that completely transforms how we should think about how people are traveling, how things are being moved around, how, what it is that unlocks um, pestilence and pathogens to make them more virulent. But quite often, emerging infectious diseases um, are very closely linked to relatively small climatic shifts. So these things, I think, need to be taken in the round.
0: So just can I come back to the Little Ice Age, because we've talked about this in previous episodes of this podcast. So for those people who don't know, this is this idea... It's captured brilliantly by Jeffrey Parker in his book *Global Crisis*, this seven thousand-page book, which covers—I mean, it's a brilliant example of global history. And it's talking about famines in China. It's talking about the religious wars in Europe, the sort of the the, the witch craze, the enormous political turbulence, all of this sort of stuff. And it's linked to the idea that there is a temperature drop of one to two percent or something like that. But am I right in thinking that you think that is oversold and that? that the idea that this is all because of climate change and because of a temperature drop is, is too, well, I don't want to say too simplistic. Well, it is too simplistic. That is your case, isn't it?
1: Uh, no, I mean, I'm, I'm from all the things that, that all my flaws, I, I try not to be a drive-by assassin of other people's works. I mean, I think Jeffrey Parker, it's a fantastic book and a huge kudos to raise the subject single-handedly about ideas around things like the Little Ice Age. I think that the problem is going granular. Is exactly when does this period start? Yeah. Um, what triggers it? And uh, the 17th century makes sense to all of us historians because we like the idea of round numbers like 1600 and 1700. And that may or may not be a reflection of um, of periodization. So lots of people argue about what exactly that date range is for the little said. Should we start it in 1450? Should it start in 1600? Um, and so on. So, so some of it depends on what it is you want to look at. And also I've been around the block enough times to know sometimes what you put on the cover of a book is about getting people to engage with its content. No, surely not. (laughs) Maybe we should be a little bit more generous about what the aims are. The thing that's interesting about Parker's book, which he he flags rather than I do, is that this crisis that you mentioned, Dominic, where we have the the 30 years war in Europe, death on a profound scale, you know, dislocations all over the world. uh, There are places that are immune from those kinds of problems. And in particular, Japan and the Dutch Republic, don't seem to go through those kinds of um, gateposts of crisis. And that will presumably speak to not about uh, the fact that the climates are slightly different. It it speaks to the resilience of the political structures that allow people to navigate crisis. And I think that's more interesting. I mean, as it happens in the course of the late 1580s, 1590s onwards, you have a series of very significant, Tom's favourite again and mine, volcanic eruptions that do produce... Very dramatic localized problems, particularly in the Americas. you know there's one uh, eruption in fifteen ninety six in Hunya putina in uh, South America that is, is enormous in its scale, and these do produce challenges and you know historians, as we all know, lots of the times challenges are navigated, but if you are at that time fighting wars of religion, if you have military expenditure that's soaking up resources, if you have a court let's say in China. Uh, under the uh, Ming dynasty that is too busy with its uh, paying money on its eunuchs and its harems and and poorly managed, then then you find you run into problems. But it doesn't always have to happen that way.
2: So just before we come on to the huge climate apocalypse, i.e. what we're living now, just to, to row back and say that climate change is not necessarily bad, is it? Because essentially, human history happens because we're not living in an ice age. Would that be an exaggeration?
1: Well, climate change definitely isn't bad. So the emergence yeah. from an
2: ice age is what enables us to make a podcast, because otherwise there wouldn't be any history for us to, to talk about. <laughs>
1: climate change, just, that just means things move around. And ch- I mean, history is all changed. So climate is one thing that changes. There are lots of things that change. I don't think that's either good or bad. Clearly, there are a bit winners and losers. I think global warming is a slightly different phenomenon to climate change. I think resource depletion is obviously another challenge. And I think. But global
2: warming, I mean, we were in an ice age. Yes. And then we emerged into what is called the Holocene, the the period in which we're now living, the geological period of time. And had the planet not warmed to that extent, it's unlikely that we would have had. Agriculture, right. Urban societies, whatever.
1: Well, for ninety nine point nine nine percent of the world's history, we wouldn't have survived. Our species wouldn't have survived in the carbon dioxide envelope that that, that it existed in. So, we're, we're great beneficiaries of all the serendipitous changes going back four and a half billion years. You know, without the five great mass extinctions of the past, we wouldn't be here. We're, we're at the long end of a sequence that dates back. Uh, billions of years. So I think, I think that that should give us a little bit of humility around how narrow our window might be on this planet. Because, as you know, with your dinosaurs and other uh, other uh, interests <laughs> in the past, Tom, uh, you, know, you, 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 you can be the apex predator yeah. for as long as you like, for millions of years, in fact. And, and I dare say your, your T Rexes and beloved predators will survive much, much longer than our species will do, where we're literally a blink in the eye. I mean, our written record. Um, going back to about, about three or 4,000 BC, let's call it. So about 5,000 years. In terms of the world's history, that's 0.001%. So um, that means, yes, is it is it bad? It's probably bad if you are poor. It's probably bad if you are um, exposed to the tropics and to very substantial temperature rises, which look likely. It's, it's bad if you are, as a government report has produced today, around flooding and coastal flooding of the British Isles, where we have all of our um, power reactors on the coasts, that probably raises questions about how can you navigate problems. But that doesn't mean you fail; it just means recognizing that you're, you're probably in for a slightly, slightly bumpy bit of fast bowling, and uh, you can you can handle. Again, as you know, Tom, from your distinguished cricketing career, you can handle <laughs> uh, youthful. Uh, Young bowlers throwing—I was going to say young boys—but you know throwing balls at you faster than you can go, and you can hit them for six, as the world knows when when that echoed the, the explosion of Tambora. To be clear, Tom Six was against a child. <laughs> I just won that absolutely on record. That's right, isn't it, Peter? It's the shot that went around the world. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't there, so I can't. I can't. I can. I've only seen the photos. Um, but no, I think that it's how do you handle. The challenge is coming towards you, and and right now our problem is is a, it's a multiple set of combinations. Okay, yeah. Peter, hold on, hold on. We'll come to the problems that we're facing now.
2: Yeah, a, a bit later. I just want to
1: stick now to the
2: idea that that global, not just climate change, but global warming, can be potentially a positive, and that the fact that the, the, the ice age ended was a was a, was a kind of broad positive. I would say. I mean, that seems to be the implication of 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 your book. Yes, but also that there have been so so you the roman warm period what's the roman warm period peter
1: it does sound like i'd quite like a roman warm period where we're getting snowfall coming I mean, it sounds yeah. great doesn't
2: it i mean who wouldn't who wouldn't enjoy a roman warm period or or indeed a medieval climate anomaly
1: i'd prefer the roman warm period no question, no question. <laughs> all, all the romans get into you know, under their duvets what is it what period are we talking about so uh, almost exactly the moment where um augustus or octavius as he was knocks over egypt for the next 250 <laughs> years it just so happens that climate conditions globally are very stable we're absent of the big volcanic eruptions uh there's no sort of major solar activities that are unusual and there are no anomalies and so it means that the Romans are very lucky in the world that they're building outwards that that there's predictable levels of of uh, of supply available and that that is on its own not enough to explain the success of the roman empire but it's an important factor and you know one of the things i write about in the book is thinking around the things that i'm interested in rome is not just the great emperors and the political acts it's as rome starts to grow as a city how do you feed a city like that you know how do you actually get grain from a to b right so
2: you need warm conditions that are able stable conditions that can
1: but but it's not just not just the climate you need to have those baths of caracalla you need to be, bring trees from a long long way away and what are the logistics of, of doing those kinds of things? And yeah, if, sure,
2: I understand that, Peter. But we're but we're focusing on climate in this episode. Oh yeah, sorry, rather yes, than, rather than rather than trees, rather than my book. So, yeah, okay, okay. I'm here to, I'm here <laughs> yes, to serve. Yes, I got you. Yes, yeah, okay. yes. got you. So, so just sticking to the climate. Oh, the climate stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so the salient thing about the, the Roman Warm Period is that it is also stable, say in China. Correct. So that is kind of interesting because it suggests that there is a kind of global. I mean, I mean. Con- can we say the same about what's happening in Central America as well, can't we? That this is, these are conditions that prevail around the globe. Would that be right? So what we call the Roman warm period could also be the Hand warm period or...
1: Bro- broadly, globally, this is a stable period, but there are pockets of change that are not, you know, that things don't just work as a kind of everybody's happy and the temperatures just stay stable, but in terms of the variation, it's relatively modest. And where that starts to change in the middle of the third century, um, in the 230s, 240s onwards, you then see a series of of high levels of of, of returns of those kind of in unstable conditions. And then you have a period where you have 25 Roman emperors on the throne in a 40-year period. You have 65 would-be emperors trying to take power. And those dislocations correlate quite closely with, uh, with disruption. And the problem is, again, it, it's not that because it rained a lot, or there was volcanic eruptions, or you couldn't grow so much crops. It's that small chinks in the wall can bring the whole thing tumbling down so small individual problems can magnify so one bat in wuhan and the whole world shuts down and ten billion people die and that that process of of understanding those fragilities of interconnectivities are important so it's the same thing along the silk roads it's the same thing in in mesoamerica when a single point fails for whatever reason because of disease because of corrupt leadership because of uh, a random enemy that pops up and knocks you over then then the whole house of cards comes tumbling down quite quickly.
2: Okay, and so that goes back to what we were talking at the beginning, how difficult it is to identify climate change specifically as an agent of of change and transformation.
1: Yeah, so that's a problem if you're making a podcast, but it's not a problem if you're writing a book that isn't saying that. (laughs) All
2: right, we should take a break at this moment. (laughs) Um,
0: And Peter can go away to consider his behaviour, Tom. And uh, the listeners can return to find him a chastened, and let's hope, uh, a better man. We'll be back in a second.
1: eBay Motors is here for the ride.
0: On a cad's chariot roads grew nothing but the wailing plant. Moreover, on its canal boat towpaths and landings, no human being walks because of the wild goats, vermin, snakes and mountain scorpions. The plains where grew the heart soothing plants grew nothing but the reed of tears. Terrifying. So, Tom, that is terrifying. Uh, that's, again, more of the curse of ACAD, which was slightly debunked, I'm sorry to say, in the first half of that episode by Peter Frankman, our very distinguished guest, who Tom is tr- desperately trying to control as though on a leash or something. Else. Tom <laughs> doesn't normally do with our guests. This is some internal cricket team politics I don't understand. No, no,
2: it's not. No, it's, it, it's, it's rather like with Willie Dalrymple. Yeah. Uh, Fenton rushing off and attacking Deer in... Fenton.
0: In, uh, in, in Regent's Park. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think he is being very, very Fenton-like, actually. I think you're being a bit harsh on him. Peter, let's take the story towards our present moment. So the Industrial Revolution, beginning, as everybody knows, in Shropshire, does that mark uh, a definitive new chapter, indeed a new book, in, in this story because of the massive impact of man-made climate change, not just locally but globally? Is that fair to say?
1: Yes, I think that the the injection of uh, fossil fuels into our atmosphere as a result of uh, the industrial revolution and, and, and particularly the combustion engine uh, clearly generates lots of benefits and lots of wins. You know, the energy revolution is an important one that that redistributes global powers as well and rights. You know, there's, there are lots of ways in which one could look at this in a positive way, but there are ecological and environmental consequences for that that I think are are really quite tricky and complicated. But the, but the challenge wasn't in 1700. It's been in, in much more recent times. So, for example, uh, about 85% of the fossil fuel has been burnt since the end of the Second World War by humans, and about 50% since I did my A-levels uh, in 1989. So it's the scale of change in the last three or four decades that's been very most dramatic. But again, if one looks at the natural environment and the transformations too, the ways in which we have globalised, partly the result of the Columbian Exchange partly as a result of empire, partly as a result of the world tying together and trying to find the best prices and the best goods and shipping them and the te- new technologies that have allowed people to communicate like us, uh, quicker, cheaper, better than ever before, has has downsides too. And it's, I think it's not, again, it's not an either or, it's that they both come hand in hand. And one of those problems is about the velocity of consumption patterns. That means that we can exploit the natural environment faster than it can replenish. And and again, that is a partly a result of improvements in communications, transport, travel, sciences, technologies. And that, that leaves us in a world where uh, things don't necessarily have to be precarious. But the challenge is if you're living like back in ACAD, if you're living on the end, uh, edge of your environmental envelope, it, it doesn't take a lot to tip you over to not be able to feed everybody. It doesn't take a lot to take you, tip you over to, to create uh, proper problems that could then ignite social and political unrest. But most of the time that doesn't happen. You know, most of the time in the last 30, 40 years, apart from a few obvious hotspots, we tend to get on quite well. I think that now the thing I'm as worried about, about global warming, is that we look like we're living in a world of quite deep fragmentation anyway. And here in Europe, and you know, with with, uh, Helen Thompson, for example, my colleague at Cambridge, who's written so well about this, that been on the show, yeah, she's been on the show. That's right. Energy, energy inefficiency in Europe, and the lack of of planning into clean and green technologies, isn't just about the environment. It means that we are in hoc to what Putin's whims might be, or whims in the Middle East, and those who produce the energy needs that we have. And that the the problem is adaptation. So uh, again, the warming problem could be solved on its own, but when you have Supply shocks, cost of living, inflationary crises, if if governments don't solve those problems, then there there, there is a sort of set of predictable gateways that you run through in uh, uh, that we can recognise from history. But it's very hard to, to guess which ones might come first.
2: So going all the way back to a CAD, you have people feeling that the heavens are out of joint, that a realm that had previously been stable and prosperous is now faced with massive shocks. And this is, as we've been exploring, a kind of recurrent anxiety that the heavens are sitting in judgment on us. Is what we are facing now, I mean, is that just another kind of example of that anxiety, one that we will move on from? Or is this qualitatively more perilous? Are we properly facing apocalypse?
1: Well, you know, Paul Ehrlich wrote a book called Population Bomb in the nineteen sixties that said, you know, we're already way beyond our abilities to feed people, and we're looking at tens of millions of starvation deaths in the next decade, and uh, that that proved to be totally wrong. So, lots of people have warned about the doom and gloom. So, you know, I, I don't particularly want to add my name to the list of people who are wrong about things, but I think I would I would defer to um, my friends and colleagues who work in biological sciences around biodiversity loss. So if we forget about humans and our problems uh, for a moment, it's the collapse of amphibian species of birds of the changes to the mammalian world and of, and of plant life that are not uniform. You know, there are winners and losers in those equations, but clearly we're going through a, a, a process that some of my very distinguished uh, colleagues call already we're going through a sixth mass extinction. And, and the difference about this one compared to, to previous five is that it's, it's much, already much faster than those dramatic ones of comets hitting the old asteroids hitting, hitting Chichiclub in Mexico and volcanic eruptions that played out over the course of, Thousands of years, but the, the rate of change, I think, of biodiversity loss and of pollinators and so on, does reach what again are being referred to in the sciences as cascade events, where you have a whole series of things that that keep getting worse and worse. It's not just, is it going to be forty degrees this summer? We'll be able to play cricket and so on. Which uh, you know, I don't say that to, to to be flippant, but you know, you can you can go through these gateways of Antarctic ice melt and of sea level rises that don't happen over the course of a year or two. But they, they do over the course of a decade or two. And uh, you can't plan fast enough to be thinking about what those might be to both mitigate and also to be aware of what some of the worst scenarios are. So, for example, the head of Lloyd's Insurance, one of the biggest insurers in the world, uh, has been saying in the last couple of months that essentially Florida is uninsurable now from a commercial point of view because of the sea level rises, the tornado seasons, the level of damage that have been done in the last few years, that the premiums are too high. And I think that that should make wherever you sit in the world sit up and think we are living in a world that is changing really dramatically fast environmentally, as well as all the political stuff that we see that has its own existential challenges.
2: But you you quote uh, a senior investment banker uh, last summer who who said, "Who cares if Miami is six meters underwater in ten years? In a hundred years, what happens to the planet in year seven is actually irrelevant to our loan book." And I think he was he was saying that slightly tongue in cheek, wasn't he? But but it does express an attitude that perhaps ties in to very ancient ideas that um, greed and heedlessness will be punished by, by the gods.
1: Well, I've got, I've, got a report, I've got a report commissioned by Bafte in my book around uh, uses of words on TV, but uh, they measured the number of times that the words global warming and climate change have been mentioned in the last two years on, on TV and radio. And I think climate change, if I'm right, mentioned about 3,000 times. The word "dog" is mentioned one hundred and ten thousand times. Cheese about one hundred thirty thousand times, and that that would tell me that the, the the way in which we were informed as I when I was growing up, when we were growing up, uh, you know, we were much more closely connected to acid rain and to Chernobyl and these kind of challenges. But I think that the level of preparation is out of sync with the level of discourse around what we're facing. And you know, our, our next generations have got a real challenge coming towards them. And I, I think one of the one of the things that's quite worrying about this is that when you see young people and the students who come through my university who are carrying quite high levels of debt, unless they're from high income families, uh, are am probably unlikely to be able to afford to get on the property ladder for a while. Job ladder looks extremely precarious. They've seen the shenanigans going on in the world of politics for you know years now, whatever your political persuasions, uh, not just in the UK, in fact, and that lack of confidence in democratic um, abilities to solve problems combined with climate has produced some real worries. I mean, there's some work commissioned just at the end of last, end of 2022 that says that 60% of people under the age of 45 in liberal, liberal democracies don't believe that regular elections are an essential part of a functioning democracy and would pick a strong man who can solve problems. That's the phrase used, strong man who can solve problems rather than uh, looking to solve things through, through democracies. And for my generation, our generation. Peter, your moment has come. My moment's here. I come, stride to the middle and hit a double hundred. Now, I think that th- those, those do start to unweave a set of problems that do have echoes back to, to Naram Sin. And there are winners in those equations. Naram Sin was able to take advantage of uh, the so called curse to make himself even stronger than he had been before. And inequalities tend to sharpen and get more divisive. Societies tend to become more unequal more more top heavy. And
0: Peter, is there another historical angle to this, which is that one of the things that makes the challenge hard to confront is that it's become entangled with the legacy of history in a different way, which is the legacy of empire and a sense that there needs to be a kind of rebalancing. So you can argue that an awful, well, the one great obstacle to resolving this sort of climate crisis is the fact that there are lots and lots of people, hundreds of millions of people in China and India who think, you know, the West is now being hypocritical. They kicked us for years. They had all the benefits of this, and now they want to deny those benefits to us. Doesn't the legacy of history therefore make it more difficult to resolve because of the experience of empire and the reaction against empire? Well,
1: look, I mean, you again, it's something you've covered and, and both have, have written about. So, I mean, I, I think that in, in that context, probably my, my own line would be I mean, obviously, that's a factor empire in the past, but it's also that over the last 30 years, uh, you know, factories across the rich world were devolved and parked in parts of the world where labour costs were much lower, and environmental standards were much lower. And so today, 496 of the world's 500 most polluted cities are in Asia. And I think it stands to reason that we're the great beneficiaries, not because of what ancestors did 500 years ago and, and long British history, but the reason why flat-screen TVs and laptops cost what they do and don't cost more is because they're not made in Stoke-on-Trent, or they're not made um, in Cornwall, but they're made in in, in, in Sichuan province. And I think that 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 it's not unreasonable to think that the people who have taken the environmental costs of the last thirty years and are most stressed, probably there should be some form of way in which we uh, are able to recognise what those what those levels of of commitment are. So we in the West have done quite well yeah. in the last thirty years of reducing our emissions. We've done quite well in recycling. We you know, lots we can do better, but we've had a head start in all of that. And I think it's it's not that let's now wag our finger at India, China, and everywhere else. It's we're all in this together. There are not that many themes in history that are truly global, but climate is obviously is obviously one of them. And so the, the, the challenge of being able to factor in what our contribution should be, I mean, if you ask an economic historian like me, you'd say you've got to be prepared for higher costs. And that's the way to try to clean things up. You've got to be willing to say, I will take a longer view, which means that I can't just have a pair of jeans that cost four quid, not just environmental conditions, but also the ESG, the kind of the social ways in which that has a, has a cost. But ethical ethical buying and ethical investment is something that you can do if you're wealthy, but you can go hand in hand if you work out a cooperate. And probably in today's world, in my day job that's not related to climate, it's that lack of dialogue that is brutal, I think, particularly with China. But in other parts of the world, too, Partly because the political narrative of kicking the West or the West sort of demanding um, submission and demanding support on things like Ukraine, but you know Putin has exploited that extremely successfully. In his in speech he gave in the Kremlin a couple of weeks ago, he said, "Look, the West has pump, pumped in 150 billion dollars into Ukraine. These are his, his numbers, and has only put 60 billion into the developing world. So, whose interests are really being protected?" And you know, I think everybody around the world takes Putin with a bit of a pinch of salt but those words are very carefully chosen to the 85% of the world's population that don't live in don't live in don't live in Europe and the west
2: well you i mean you have some stupefying statistics on the imbalance between um, wealthy nations their contribution to climate change and and those who are not wealthy so you say that new york city uses more energy than all of sub saharan african put together that the world's largest institutional user of petroleum and the single largest institutional producer of greenhouse gases in the world is the U.S. Department of Defense. And um, you you were talking about um, cheap fashion, and you say that the fashion industry as a whole is estimated to contribute around 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions, more than the aviation and shipping industries combined.
1: Well, making a pair of jeans takes 7,500 litres of water. That's enough for a single human to drink water for seven years. And uh, it's partly a lack of education. We don't really know that, never really think about that. And I think what good history can do is is to flag some of these things where, where if you stop and get your underlining pen and think, I didn't quite understand that the fashion and textile industry is something that has a bigger imprint or that, that some of the wins, in fact, I mean, there's a, there's a study done by some very clever scholars that, that the contrails that are left by planes flying in the sky, uh, that a very modest correction uh, can re- can reduce the environmental damage that is due by 80%, but at more or less cost-neutral basis. But it requires the modelling.
2: And also, I'm very excited to read that um, it's been shown that cattle can be trained to control their micturation reflex and use a latrine for urination with significant environmental <laughs> oh, and climactic words. benefits. So that's... That's an exciting.
1: Yeah, that's not my own research, that <laughs> uh, but you know, thank God there are people trying to work out. I mean, we, you know, again, we know that that, yeah. that cattle and ruminants are a, a huge part of the problem in terms of methane production. We obviously the beef beef is a have massively heavy footprint in terms of its uh, demands on soil and above us forest clearance. So to try to find a way to reduce that would seem to me a very Positive way of spending taxpayer money on research that might make a difference, and so we can laugh at these kinds of discoveries. but I dare say that there are some people who would think that that's maybe better spent than looking at French revolutionary poetry um through the lens of whatever you might be looking at French revolutionary poetry and you know I, I think that the, the the ways in which we do need to try to think quite creatively start with ideas that 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 may seem slightly startling and slightly strange, but we we do have quite a series of problems to solve, and getting on with that would seem to be quite quite a good idea
0: for such a potentially bleak subject you're quite optimistic aren't you because on this podcast um I've s- long time listeners will know that the the Sandbrook rule of history is you should eat your neighbors before they eat you <laughs> but but you definitely don't take that view do you you're very miss world you know let's all be great
1: pals we're all friends I love that. You know, I love lovers that. in the air. I'd like I'm gonna print that out Miss world. Yeah, okay.
0: Uh but, but you but you are quite optimistic, aren't you? You do think we have the capacity to overcome these challenges. I mean you talk a lot about the resilience you emphasize the resilience of states. You mentioned the Dutch Republic and Japan during the seventeenth century, or you know, even ACAD. Um there is a kind of do you think that resilience will be there in the next few centuries?
1: Well, I th- like I said, I think that the world keeps on spinning. If you if you're going to bet against that, then you know then then i suggest the roman warm period and getting your duvet and finding a nice quiet burrow to bury yourself in is is, is not is not a bad idea i think betting against human ingenuity uh is is really bleak you know th- thinking that we are going through a point where we might all be out of all existence and live in a kind of post apocalyptic world sooner than later um you know i think it, it is the the existential side of that is so profound that i think uh you know it, it is also dangerous to talk to predict the, the the doom and gloom i mean as it happens those who've done that before me have all got it wrong so uh, you yeah know, if you're going to bet against the house you might as well think that uh, you might as well think that there are ways in which we might nudge things forward and improve things and for all of the terrible horrors of history that you've covered in your podcast you know from the holocaust through the second world war through the trenches of the first world war through the 17th century through justinianic plague black death you know, the world, even with fifty percent population losses in some of these cases in in the thirteenth, forty in the fourteenth century, for example, you know, there there are there are ways in which things get get moving again. So, I think we have to assume that there are ways in which we can prepare and and, and mitigate. But what again, what I think good, what good policy should be doing is understanding first of all what the problems really are. And it's not just that it's going to rain a bit too much, or not going to rain at all, or it's going to snow this weekend. It's it's what does that actually mean for us all? And how do we have the resilience in, for starting in our individual countries to have the kind of basic things that that anybody should want, which is food supply, energy, and uh resistance to disease environments? And those three big things, I think, are ones we should uh, uh take the lessons of the last two or three years quite carefully, because there are no tomatoes on the shelves. Uh, we've got no energy sufficiency because of, of Putin. And we've just all been locked down for two years. So if you were to mark current governments all around the world on these three big things that I'd want to be looking at, uh, it's hard to find someone who's done done well. And that, that's the worry, the investability of of leaderships and visions around the world. More historians needed. <laughs> Seize your chance. They're waiting for you, Tom. Take power. And Dominic, it's the both of you who are... You know, I, I do think, I mean, I know you, you told me off for saying thank you for having me on. I, I do think that these kinds of podcasts are so vital in opening up the, the walls of history beyond historians and those who are interested in history generally to much, much wider audiences. And I can't tell you how... I mean, this is your this is what you do all the time, so you don't think about it like this. But, but, but putting history in the centre of people's drive to work or way, way, way home or whatever it is and trying to connect the relevance of history into contemporary themes, it's not easy to do. But, you know, it's hugely important. And the fact that you are... You know you 've done so this amazing job in the last two or three years um, people like me, and other historians, but also people who are listening to this will will spark off ideas i mean i 'm a very boring academic. My job is to inspire the next generation of students. but having a platform or coming on somewhere like something like this to be able to reach people who i 'd never be able to reach otherwise um you know hopefully sets chain reactions for other people who are much cleverer than me to start solving problems well
2: bless you peter
1: oh peter (laughs) we love we love to
2: end the podcast
1: (laughs) by talking about (laughs) our own podcast
2: and uh, (laughs) and and the role that we are playing in combating climate change (laughs) but peter you're obviously being insanely over modest um because you are absolutely um you know you're out there firstly with silk roads your international bestseller and now with the earth transformed an untold history although of course you have actually told it now because that's what the book's all about. So thank you very, very much. Um, it's a great book, a sobering but not entirely depressing book. So thank you very much for coming on, Peter. We will be back next time with another apocalyptic story, won't we? we
0: of course. Do you want to give people a, a little sense? George you want to ask Peter his view? <laughs> so, Peter, we we we're actually we tried to think of the one historian. Um, who might eclipse you in terms of international reputation and reach? And Tom, do you want to tell Peter who it is who we, we're comparing him with?
1: Is it Dominic Sandbrook and Tom Holland? No, no,
2: no. And you very notably, you left him out of, um, out of your book. Uh, it's Graham Hancock oh. whose, um, perspective on the, on the destruction of Atlantis. You have failed to mention it. Oh. Is he that. coming
1: on the podcast um, live? Maybe the <laughs> one that <laughs> not.
2: No, no, <laughs> he's not. He's not. But we will be back next week. Um, with two specials on Atlantis. Um, where does the myth come from? What's it all about? Um, was there really an alien civilization destroyed by climate change? Um, and Peter will update you on the fruits of that. So you might want to tune yeah. in. We, won't, we don't <laughs> want to know your opinion. You'll have to wait till next week to find out ours. <laughs> but you can revise your book if you uh, if you feel that uh, you need to, having listened to it. Anyway, Peter, thanks so much for coming on Earth Transformed and Untold History by Peter Frankopan. Thank you all for listening.
1: Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, and thanks for having me, guys. Goodbye.
2: Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.